How's this? Ooh. Let's see the side of it real quick. Joel saving the day. Thank you, Joel. Gosh, it's, if it hasn't been one thing, it's been another with this sound stuff. Um, okay, my friends, let's go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 12. Uh, if you're watching with us online, thank you. Um, that kind of was a good illustration of why we desperately need people like Joel and Darren and Josh. Their pastor doesn't know what he's doing with sound stuff. And I've got to brag on them. Uh, we've been having issues with, uh, with the online component of our service. And those guys have been putting in hours and hours and hours coming in here on their days off stringing wires, trying to get this thing sorted out, and I think they've uh, hit the spot. So when you see Josh, when you see Darren, when you see Joel later, thank them so much. And if you're watching online, shoot them a text message and say thank you, or a Facebook message. They've been working hard. Can't say enough about those guys. Okay, Romans chapter 12. We've been there for a few weeks. Um, as you'll remember, the book of Romans... The Apostle Paul's writing a letter to a church. And the first 11 chapters to this church is all about the Gospel. It is the mercies of God displayed. That we are saved by grace through faith. That there is nothing that we have in us that is lovable, that is righteous, that is good. There's nothing in us that God, that God says, I need to save that person because of what Jordan Hodges has done. Nothing in us like that. That he has saved us purely by his mercy and grace. And so Paul lays this out beautifully in 11 chapters of Romans. And then chapter 12, you'll remember, turns. And Paul says, in view of these great mercies that God has showed us, how shall we live? And Paul says, in view of God's mercies, Christians present their bodies as living sacrifices. In view of God's mercies, we are willing to offer our entire life sacrificed for the glory of our King. We've talked about that for the last few weeks. D.L. Moody will give us a little twist on that living sacrifices language. He says it like this. The entrance fee to the kingdom of God is nothing. The annual dues are everything. Isn't that a good way to say it? Paul says, in view of God's mercies, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. D.L. Moody echoes him by saying, the entrance fee to the kingdom of God is nothing. The annual dues are everything. The entrance fee into the kingdom of God. When we are saved, <clears throat> we are saved only by the payment of Jesus Christ. He has paid the ticket, Christian, for you to enter into the kingdom of God. There is nothing you have, you haven't raised a single finger, you haven't paid a single penny to enter into the kingdom of God. It's all paid for by Jesus Christ. Isn't that great news? That is the mercies of God. And then once we are in the kingdom of God, the annual dues are everything. That means as we enter into the kingdom of God, totally paid for by the work of Jesus, what the Holy Spirit will do in us is give us a desire in the view 
of this payment by Jesus. In the view of that, we will have this desire to say, King Jesus, whatever you want, I am willing to offer. This kingdom that I find myself in is so precious and so great and so magnificent and so merciful and glorious that I'm willing to pay anything in appreciation and thanksgiving for the kingdom I have received. For the glory of our King, in joy, we sacrifice everything. For the glory of our King, in joy, we sacrifice everything. The annual dues of the Kingdom of God are everything. Christian, do you consider yourself, your family, your job, your bank account, your friends, your social standing, your home, your car, your church, do you consider everything sacrificed for the glory of God? Have you presented your life to God and have you said, in view of the great mercies that you have shown me, I want to make available to you every inch of my life? Have we said that? And even as we try and and make an effort to sacrifice everything for the good of our King, even in that we have the mercies of God Because in God's mercy, He's the one who empowers us to these sacrifices. He empowers us to the sacrifices He commands. Even in these annual dues of sacrificing everything for God, even there we have the mercies of God for His Holy Spirit or what make these sacrifices possible. So lest we think, I come to Christ for free and then I give Him my life and now I'm somehow better than you or I have some self-righteousness that keeps me good with God or these sacrifices make me more lovable to God, lest we think that, we must remember that even those sacrifices, God gets the glory. He's done it. Even in those, He has done it. Paul will tell another church this, we are being transformed. We are offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Our hearts are being changed. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So even in this call to sacrifice everything, God, here it is. Here's my family, here's my home, here's my car, here's my bank account, here's my education, here's my life, here's my blood, here's everything. This is for you. Even in that is the mercies of God because He is the one who has given us a heart for that. And so this is what it works. This is how it works. The entrance fee in the kingdom of God is nothing. The annual dues are everything. Here you go, God. Here are my annual dues of my entire life spread out before you. This is how it works. I get eternal, never-ending, all-satisfying, mind-blowing joy and freedom in Christ. That's what I get. And God gets all the credit. I get eternal life. God gets all the credit. That's a great deal. I'll do that deal every day. And so Paul, mercies of God, chapters 1-11, through 
Romans chapter 12 turns it and says, in view of these mercies, how then shall we live? And then verse 9 through 21 will give us a shotgun blast, boom, of all kinds of different ways that we live our life in view of God's mercy. And these ways are kind of all scrambled around. They can be different things. And this is how we're going to organize these things that Paul tells us. This is how a living sacrifice lives. He's going to tell us that. This is how we're going to organize it. We're going to start here. In view of God's mercy, God, the Holy Spirit, transforms my heart. In view of God's mercy, my heart will be changed. And then we're going to take a little step further. We're going to say, in view of God's mercy, with this transformed heart, my heart will change towards you, my church family. And then in view of God's mercy, we're going to take it universal. In view of God's mercy, this changed heart that is changed towards you is also changed towards the world. So that's where Paul's going. That's where we're going. So let's read this together. Let's read the Word of God. Romans chapter 12, big number 12, little number 9, goes like this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You ready for this one? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In view of God's mercy, how shall we live our life? In view of God's mercy, what will be the condition of my heart? What will be the condition of my heart towards you? What will be the condition of my heart towards my enemies? In view of God's mercy, understanding what He has done for us in Jesus. First stop, right here, right? First stop. The mercy, in view of God's mercy, we understand that a transformed heart is a necessary outcome of the Gospel. A changed heart is a necessary outcome of the Gospel. This is what Ezekiel 36.26 says, And I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A necessary outcome of you believing the mercies of God that has been given towards you, a necessary outcome of that belief is the Holy Spirit changing you from the inside out. That's necessary. That's what experiencing the Holy Spirit is all about. That's what being right with God will produce in us. It is a changed heart. And so Paul says, in view of God's mercy, what will your heart be like? In view of God's mercy, our hearts will be full of genuine love. That's what he starts out saying. Let love be genuine. In view of God's mercy, my heart will have genuine love for others. Now, in view of God's mercy, what do we know about genuine love? Well, we know, we know how God loves us. And if there's anyone who has genuine love, it's God. And so how does God's genuine love for me, how does that work? What does that look like? Well, we have seen in the mercies of God what this genuine love looks like. And this genuine love has a lot of dynamics, but we're going to focus on two. God's love for you, Christian, is first, it is a steadfast and long-suffering love. It is a steadfast and long-suffering love. It is a love that says, I'm with you to the end. Isn't that good news? God's love for you, Christian, is one that says, no matter what you do, I'm with you. Isn't that good news? Exodus says it this way. This long-suffering, steadfast love for us says it this way. The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger. Are you happy slow to anger? slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love. This is, if you were with us with, in, in the book of Ruth several, several months ago, maybe a year ago, say, Ruth says, Hesed love. It's the idea that, that Naomi tells Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to leave her, go back to her own people. Ruth says, no, where you go, I go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where they bury you, they're going to bury me. And that is called hesed love. Steadfast love. That is God's love for you, believer in Jesus Christ. This is the quality of genuine love that perseveres. Married friends, do you need that kind of love in your marriage? Love that perseveres? Yeah! It's the love that says, I'm not going anywhere. It's the love that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is God's love for you, Christian. That is God's mercy for you. That there's nothing you can do top to bottom that will stop God from loving you. Isn't that good news? That's great news. So what does genuine love look like? Genuine love is long-suffering, steadfast love. 
God's love for us, in the mercies of God, we see God with loving kindness towards His people. Psalm 40.11 says this, You, O Lord, will not withhold Your compassion for me. Your loving kindness and Your truth will continually preserve me. God's love for you is a loving kindness, which means God's love for you is Him joyfully giving you unearned goodness. God's genuine love for you is loving kindness saying, I just like making you happy. Isn't that good news? I just love giving you good things. God's love for you is saying, here's something really, really nice. What do I do to deserve that? Why are you giving me this? Nothing, I just love you. Isn't that great? Isn't that great news? Genuine love is a love that, that enjoys giving freely. Fake love is a love that says, when you earn it, I will do good for you. If that is our, ento- our t- entire definition of love, that's not genuine love, that is fake love. So we've got steadfastness. No matter what I do, God is with me. And His steadfast nature is combined with His loving kindness. No matter what I do, He is with me. No matter what I do, He enjoys giving me good things I don't deserve. What are some of those things? Everything in your life. This next breath that you take is from God's loving kindness for you. It's not earned. Parents, your children are not earned. Your job is not earned. Your bank account is not earned. That TV show you love is unearned goodness from God's loving kindness towards you, believer. That is the genuine love of God. And boy, is this countercultural. Disney and our culture and Hollywood has told us, no, love is about feelings. And so when you rub me the wrong way, I'm going to take a step back from you. I'm not going to be steadfast. If I fall out of love for you, which doesn't exist, it's not a true thing. If I fall out, I'm going to take a step away from you. That's what, that's what the world says love is. God says, no, love is no matter what you're doing, I'm here, I'm committed. And the world says, no, I will give you good things if you treat me the right way, if you vote the right way, if you, if you speak to me in the right manner, if you do X, Y, and Z, then I will be good to you. No, God's love is, I just love being good to you. That's countercultural for sure. <clears throat> and then Paul, let your love be genuine in view of God's mercy toward us. Let your love be genuine. And then Paul, lest we fall into this idea that love is just a kind of warm, fuzzy feeling, niceness, a kind of shallow love that just tries to not rub people the wrong way and give people nice things. Lest we fall into that temptation, Paul uses the next sentence to tell us what genuine love has. Let's read it together. Verse 9, the second sentence. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Steadfast love 
and loving kindness separated from the truth is not love. Genuine love separated from the truth is not love. Paul says, Romans, don't take this too far now. Don't think that it's just about nice feelings, warm fuzzies in your church. No, you must still be able to hate evil, which means if you fall in evil, I need to love you enough to get you out. And if you've ever had those conversations, you know that there's not a lot of love, not a, not a lot of lo- warm, fuzzy feelings in that kind of love. In fact, this kind of love for you that I, have, that I need to have towards you that abhors evil, and when I see that in you, the truth that I speak to you in love, that might be the most important love that I can have for you. Do I really love my children if I'm not willing to tell them that they're sinners in need of a Savior? Do I? Do I really have love for them? No. Do I really have love for my neighbor if they're not right with God through the person of Jesus Christ and I'm not willing to tell them? That's a hard con- Is that a hard conversation? Yeah. Do I really love my neighbor if I'm not willing to have that conversation? No, of course not. Of course not. In fact, when... God speaks of His loving kindness in the Bible, it often comes right next to truth. He often says loving kindness and truth in the same verses. This connection is so important. I've got seven examples here. I've got six examples here, but I'm going to give you two. The psalm we said earlier, Psalm 4011, You, O Lord, will not withhold Your compassion for Me. Your loving kindness and Your truth will continually preserve me. Loving kindness and truth together. Psalm 26.3 says the same thing. For your loving kindness is before my eyes and I have walked in your truth. Truth and loving kindness. Abhor evil. Cling to the good. Genuine love wants what's best for others, and what's best for others is to be in obedience to God. If we l- Genuine loving kindness, genuine love wants what's best for you, and what's best for you is not to partake in evil. Paul will tell another church this in Galatians 6.1. He'll say, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any sin... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So we've got steadfast love is genuine love. Loving kindness I want to give to you because I love you. Not because you've earned it. And the truth of God. All these things combined to make genuine love that Paul calls us to. In view of God's mercy, have genuine love in your heart. In view of God's mercy, God will produce in believers a zealous heart, a servant's heart, and a heart totally satisfied 
with Jesus. He says, don't be slothful in zeal. That's kind of a weird way to say it. Don't be slothful in zeal. What's slothful? Slothful is slow and plodding. Anyone want me to finish my sermon preaching like that? Some of you probably think I'm preaching like that right now. Slow and plodding. It's lazy. That's kind of slothful, right? So don't be slothful in zeal. What a weird thing, because zeal is excitement. It's, yeah, let's go. It's energy. Don't be slothful in zeal. What in the world is he trying to say here? This means, Christians, in view of God's mercy, you understand the gospel. It's captured your heart. In view of God's mercy, this is a necessity. You have a heart for God. You love God. You understand the gospel. That's great. You have that in your heart. But don't let that be coated with laziness. And this, this is what this example is. It's when I come to you and I'm a non-believer and I say, hey, what in the world? Tell me about the hope that you have in Jesus. Tell me about that. And you go, yeah, Jesus is great. I don't know what to tell you. He's the best. What is that? That is, your zeal has been coated in laziness. Christians should be the most excited people on the planet. We should be so excited to tell people about the hope that we have. We should be furthest away from sloths. We should be cheetahs. I don't know. We should have a heart that loves to tell that story. So, Paul says, don't be lazy in your excitement. Don't take the right words and say, let me tell you about Jesus. He's great. He died on the cross. He rose again from the grave. That is the most exciting news ever. Let that excitement be coated with zeal. Let those words be coated with zeal. When we sing together, sing with zeal. Don't be slothful in your zeal. When we talk about Jesus like a sloth, we make the Gospel look boring. And we make the church look lazy, and we make Jesus look less than all powerful. So our friends are looking at us going, you're saying this guy's all powerful and he's giving you all things and he's, he's, he died on the cross and he rose again and he's God. And so you talk about him? I don't need that. I don't need that. Our right words must be coated with the excitement of those saved from hell and into the kingdom of God. We have received in Christ Every single good thing is ours in Jesus. We have received an eternal kingdom. We've had all of our sins forgiven. He is making me perfect. We are invited to the banquet of the King of Kings. So I better not be more excited about going to the barbecue place than I am about the King of Kings, the banquet of the King of Kings. So have, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, have a zealous heart. Have, have your words about the gospel coated and dripping with excitement because it is the most exciting news. Have a heart on fire. And a heart on fire from the mercies of God will be a servant's heart. He says, 
He says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. When I realize what God has given me, and when I allow the mercies of God to set fire to my heart for God, and when everything about my life is dripping with excitement because of what God has done for me, when that happens, the, the next logical progression is, I will want to serve my King You've done this for me, God? What can I do? What can I do to help this mission? What can I do to tell more people? How can I serve the church? Have a servant's heart. A heart on fire from the mercies of God will be a servant's heart and will be totally satisfied in Jesus. He says, verse 12, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. In, when I have the views of God's mercy before me, I can rejoice, have hope in every situation. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. My friends, we are not a hopeless people. COVID has made it easy for Christians to feel hopeless, discouraged, upset, frustrated. It's easy. It's been easy to feel hopeless. It's been easy to forget the mercies of God in our life. But Paul would say, no, Christian, you're not hopeless. Come on. You're not hopeless. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter what your heart feels about mass or no mass school or no school, whatever. Doesn't matter, Paul says, don't feel hopeless. You're not hopeless. No, in fact, we can always rejoice and we can be patient in persecution. Christian, he's writing to a group of people who are going to be lit on fire for the emperor's garden parties. He tells them, rejoice in all things. Be patient in tribulation. How should that understanding shape how we walk through this world with COVID. It should change everything. Be patient when the Caesar comes in and busts down your door. Be patient when Nero will lie and say that Christians set fire to the whole city of Rome? Rejoice. Rejoice in the tribulation that's coming when some of you will be plucked from your church and set on fire? Rejoice. Yes. Because in view of God's mercy, we understand the power and the sovereignty of God in view of God's mercy. 
And this seems so alien to me. And it seems so weird coming out of my mouth. But in view of God's mercy, we are to see every suffering in our life as a blessing from God that we have been deemed worthy to suffer for the sake of the Gospel. In view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, when He ties you, when Caesar ties you to that post, rejoice. How? Because Paul already told us the secret in Romans chapter 8. He says, Christian, this is the love of God for you. This is the mercies of God for you. You can't see it. And you're going to feel it's going to be hard to grasp a hold of, but you've got to hold on to it with both hands. It could slip away so easily. But understand this, Paul says, all things work together for the good of those who love God. All things. So how can we be hopeless? He told him that a few chapters ago. How This is the mercy of God that God is so good to you that He's going to squeeze out Goodness that will blow your mind for eternity out of every little piece of suffering in your life. The little stuff and the big stuff. He says, in view of God's mercy, the only proper thing for our hearts to do is rejoice. And Christians... And it's hard to say, it's hard to, for it to come out of my mouth when I think about these poor Christians who are reading this letter. It's almost so, it's, it's like I can't even, shouldn't even be on my lips. But Christians, no matter what happens to us, because of the mercy of God, we have never had a bad day. And because of the mercies of God, when we understand this, when it grips us, we've, we've got to hold on to it with both hands. I mean, one of the things that we're going to want to do is, is pray, is talk to God, that the God who provides this mercy to us wants to hear from me. Wants to hear from me. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. That is, that shapes our heart. That shapes our heart. And so Paul says, the mercy of God shapes our heart this way. And then he brings it out and he says, how should my heart be towards you, my church family? If I have a heart that's on fire, that's satisfied with the person of Jesus Christ, if I have a heart that's genuinely loving, and if I, if I have that genuine love because of my view of God's mercy, His heart toward me, I will love what He loves the way He loves it. And so if I understand these things, my heart's been shaped by the Gospel, I will want to love you because God loves you, and I want to love you because God loves you, and I want to love you the way God loves you. How does God love Trinity. How does He love Trinity? He loves you, Christian. He loves you, Trinity Baptist Church, like you are His own 
child. That's his love for you. Galatians 3.26 He loves you, Trinity Baptist Church, like you are His own body. He loves you, Trinity Baptist Church, like you are His bride. As I, when, in view of God's mercy that He loves you that way, how should I love you? If that's how God loves us, how does our enemy want us to treat each other? If you are the bride of Christ, my message as I'm thinking about how to treat you should be this. Don't you dare mistreat the bride of Christ. Should should there be anything that scares us more than that? That's how precious you are. So church, don't mistreat the bride of Christ. Don't gossip about her. Don't be disunified with her. Don't have sinful anger against her. Don't slander her. Love her with steadfast love. Love her with loving kindness. Be zealous about how you treat her. Yeah, we're not perfect. But we are His bride. Don't badmouth my bride. Don't mistreat my bride. Don't mistreat the bride of Christ. So, this mercy, review of God's mercy should change my heart towards you. It should be a heart that loves and honors you. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another with brotherly affection. We are literally a family. You are my sister. You are my brother. There is a guarantee. Get, get, please, please understand this. There's a guarantee That you, if you're a believer, and me as a believer, we will be family for eternity. Understand how how deep that goes? It goes so deep. This is a sad and sobering thing. But as sad as it is, that guarantee is not true about our physical family. Think how deep our connection goes. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Make it a competition, he says, to see how much you can honor the members of your church family. The idea is this, no, after you, no, after you. You know how people get into that little stuff, right? After you, after you, no, no, after you. You go first, no, I'll park way back there. You park closer. No, give me that brush. I'll clean the church toilet. No, do outdo one another in honor. And he says, Live in harmony with one another. Do we live in harmony? Do we live in harmony even in our disagreements? Live in harmony. This means be singing 
the song of genuine love in view of God's mercy. This means don't sing your own song. Sing the church's song. This means don't sing your own tune. Sing the church's tune. This is one of the reasons that we sing together on Sunday morning is so we can have a parable of the, of the harmony of the Gospel of God's people. When we sing together, you need to sing and sing loudly because we are showing everyone. We're showing the world that we are living in harmony because of the mercies of God. Show my daughters and my son that we are living in a harmony by singing together. A heart for you is a heart to take care of you. Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You need to be seeking for ways to love and support your church family. He says, my heart for you is a heart unified with my church family because of our unity in Christ alone. He says, verse 16, don't be haughty, don't be prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Last week we talked about the importance of humility. That the first thing that the mercies of God should do is knock any pride out of our hearts. I've done nothing to receive any of the good that, that has come my way. It's all from the mercies of God. So to take credit for that, to be prideful about anything in my life, is to try to steal credit from God. What an awful thing to do. And so he says, when I'm interacting with you, I must be humble. I must be humble. He says, associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. When I understand the mercies of God, I will understand the people of God. There's no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. The poorest person in church and the richest person in church are equally the bride of Christ. The wisest person in church and the most foolish person in church are equally the bride of Christ. The most sinful person among us and the most righteous person among us are equally the bride of Christ. Associate with the lowly. Why does he have to command that? Because the temptation is going to be for me to see some of you as lesser than me. And the temptation is going to be for you to look at me as lesser than you. It's true 2,000 years ago. It's true now. He says when you understand the Gospel it's not going to be there in your heart. When you understand the Gospel, you're going to see the lowliest among us as a son or daughter of God. Paid for and covered by the blood of our King. Who might look shabby now, but in eternity, they're going to be 
the most glorious being you will ever imagine. If you, C.S. Lewis says, if you were to see that most lowly person now in eternity, you will be tempted to worship them because they will be so glorious. These, that's true for you, that's true for me. So the only thing that unites us, we're not united by, we're not saying, well, we're a white collar church or we're a middle class church or we're a pit state church or we're, we're a white church or we're any X, Y, and Z. What unites us is Jesus. I just heard of a town. Actually, I lived in a town growing up. Little, I don't even remember. I was really little. Lived in a town. And their newspaper tagline was, A great town, a town for whites. It's a tagline. Like 30 years ago, that was the tagline. Think about the churches in that place. Or church for white people. Are you kidding me? That's a church that doesn't understand the mercies of God. That we are united not by skin color, but by Christ. Mercies of God. In view of God's mercy. Changes my heart. It'll change my heart towards you. And it'll change my heart for the world. For God so loved the world, John 3.16. God loves the world. If I understand the mercies of God, I will love the world. Matthew 5, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you might be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Our Father loves sinners. We love sinners. And if we don't, He's not our Father. This heart that loves the world, Paul says, will rejoice, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, will weep with those who weep. A heart for the world will be a heart that's empathetic, that feels what other people are feeling, that feels what the world is feeling. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. Jesus wept for Jerusalem because it was about to be destroyed because they have rejected Christ. Jesus saw the crowds, you might remember in Mark, Jesus saw the crowds that were coming to get him and were crushing him with their presence. He saw them and he had sympathy on them. They saw them as a, he saw them as a, as a sheep without a shepherd. It's a heart that's empathetic. A heart that loves the world. Now this one, this is counter-cultural for conservative American Christianity. A heart that understands the mercies of God will care what the world thinks and will want to be at peace if at all possible. Read verse 17 with me again, please. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
in view of God's mercy, I will want to be at peace with as many people as possible. My observation as a son of a conservative Baptist preacher, grew up in conservative Baptist churches, pastors, pastored conservative Baptist churches, been on staff at conservative Baptist churches. My observation is conservative American Christians are always itching for a fight. It's my observation. It's my observation of being in these churches. It's my observation of being a conservative American because I am one. We fall into temptation to say things like, I don't care what the world thinks. I'm going to do it. I don't care. I don't care what they think. That's our, that's our attitude. And Paul says the opposite. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, do your best to make a positive impact on everyone. On everyone. That's the attitude of a living sacrifice. That is part of the dues we pay to be in the kingdom of God. Is that we try our best to think through what will show us as honorable to the world. Why? We are Christ's ambassadors, Paul tells us. His ambassadors. That means the things that come out of my mouth are representing my King. Ambassadors go overseas and they speak for the nation. They speak for the King. They speak for the President. You, Christians, speak for Jesus. The things you type, the things you text, the things you email, the things you say. There's, there's going to be no saying, well, God, I said that as Jordan Hodges, the 34-year-old white guy, father of three. I said that. I didn't say that one as your ambassador. That's not how it works. Everything that comes out of our mouth is representing our King Now look, we know we can't, we can't do everything that will be honorable to the world because lots of stuff that's honorable to the world is sinful. But as we think through how to interact with our neighbors, we must be thinking through, can I do this in such a way to make a great impact on these people? When I'm typing this Facebook post out, am I thinking, how can I type this out in a way that a non-believer will look and see it as honorable? an easy one. Most of the time, just don't post it, right? We don't need to post everything. We need to be honorable because we are Christ's ambassadors, and we must be honorable because the Gospel offends people. May it never be said of Jordan Hodges that him being a jerk is what's offended non-believers. Because guess what? I'm a jerk a lot. I need to work hard at not being a jerk. Because the Gospel I preach is offensive in itself. 
Paul will tell another church this in Corinth. They'll say, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. If we're going to offend somebody, let that be the Gospel. That offends. Because we're all sinners. That's offensive. The only way to be right with God is through Jesus. That's offensive. May I not, may they not be offended because I'm a jerk. May they be offended by the good news of Jesus Christ. If they are offended by my actions or my words, may they be offended by the truth as I reach out and try to share with them the good news of Jesus. He says, we have a heart that works for peace with every man. Works for peace with every man. Now, we're going to end talking about Maybe the biggest sign of a heart that understands the gospel. Okay? The question then is what do I do? I would love the world. I'll try to be empathetic. I'll try not to be a jerk. All that stuff. Okay, I'm an ambassador for Christ. I try to do what's honorable. I get all that. What do I do with my enemies? And now I know you're, you're like me. You're like, well, I don't think anybody is my enemy. I don't think anybody hates me. What do we do? For enemies all the way down to the people who drive you crazy. What do we do with that whole scope? What do we do with those people? Well, what we do with those people is probably the best sign of whether or not we understand the mercies of God. How we treat our enemies is a great thermometer for our heart on fire for God or cold to His mercies. Paul will tell them this six chapters before. He'll say this, Therefore, since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from wrath through Him? For if when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. That should change how I treat everyone on the planet. In the mercies of God, I was His enemy enemy and he sent me his son to die on a cross and if that is understood and because that is true it is the it is the best sign of whether or not i understand the mercies of god is how i treat people i disagree with and how i treat my enemies If I understand the mercies of God, they're poured out on me, His enemy, and He made me His son, even though I was His enemy. If I understand that, I'll have a heart for my enemies. And a heart for my enemies, Paul says, will bless those who persecute you. Will pray to God for those people who drive you crazy. Will say, God, I bless them. Please bless them. Give them good things. Give them great things. Do you do that with your enemies? Man, that's hard. When we disagree, when they persecute, when they annoy, when they, when they go on Facebook, when they send me a text message, when they snub me in the grocery store, before we gossip, before we slander, before we get angry, before we do all those things, ask ourselves, have we genuinely asked God to do good things for them? Bless them. It is a heart for our enemy that trusts God and His justice. It is a heart that trusts our enemies, here you go God, to God's sovereign justice. 
He says in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How do we treat our enemies? We can love our enemies because we know God's justice is coming for all sinners. We can trust our enemies to God. We can love them because we know, folks, they're not going to get away with their sins. That sin, the worst thing anyone's ever done to you, will be avenged. Period. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. They're not going to get away with it. And this is going to happen one of two ways. Those sins that have come against you, God is going to repay. It's going to happen two ways. Either number one, that person who wronged you will pay for that sin in hell for eternity. That puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? That should sober us up. And that should also help us understand, wow, the way they've treated me is how I've treated other people. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Those people will pay for their sins in hell under the wrath of God forever. Or, or, in God's mercy, the Holy Spirit will convict them of sin. And they will, they will understand their need for a Savior. And they will repent of all their sins. And they will trust God for their salvation. And that sin is still punished. But not on them. On Jesus. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That sin will be punished. No sin, including mine, including yours, goes away scot-free. My sin is paid for on the blood, uh, by the blood of Jesus and on His back. And when we understand the mercies of that, when we understand the mercies of that, it will change how we see the sin of other people toward us. It will allow us to love them. When we understand that no one's ever offended me as much as I've offended God. No one's ever sinned against me as much as I've sinned against God. And yet Jesus came He paid for that sin. They're not going to get away with it. It should make me hope and pray that they're going to see Christ and come to Christ to be a whole new creation. There's no room for vengeance there. There's room for praying that God blesses them and praying that God brings them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In view of God's mercy, our hearts are transformed. My heart is changed towards you and my heart will be changed toward my enemies. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask you. In view of God's mercy, has your heart been changed? In view of God's mercy, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? In view of God's mercy, do you love your enemies? Do you pray that God blesses them? In view of God's mercy, do you understand that God has come while you are His enemy? 
He has sent Jesus Christ to save you. And while you were His enemy, He sent God the Holy Spirit to convict you sweetly of sin. And while you were His enemy, God has renewed you to new life in the person of Jesus Christ. All that while you were His enemy, He gave that to you. Jesus died for you while you were still His enemy. And not only made you a friend, but made you now a son and daughter of the Most High God and brought you a church family to love and to love you. And now has made you His ambassadors. Do you understand the mercies of God? Let me pray for all of us that we understand the mercies of God and that they begin to shape and continue to shape our heart. Father, Father, we pray that we don't just Father, we pray that we're not slothful in our zeal, but Father, help us to understand the mercies that You have shown us through Jesus. And Father, continue to transform our hearts. Father, melt our hearts for one another. Help us to love each other with genuine love. Help us to love our enemies. Father, help us to be united to our church family. Thank You for the mercies that You have shown us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.